Dogs Always Know by Elizabeth Sanse Holding. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Krista Zaleski. Dogs Always Know. Into this dignified love story, Hugh Captain McGregor barges with a grand cargo of humor to match little Leroy's dramatic dog. The lovely little Miss Selby came from Boston, and the large, not unhandsome Mr. Anderson came from New York, and they did not like each other. Indeed, Miss Selby was not very fond, just then, of anyone who did not come from Boston. Sometimes she even went so far as to declare to herself that she did not like anyone at all except the members of one certain household in Boston. It was at night, after she had gone to bed, that she usually made this somewhat narrow-minded declaration, because it was at that time, when she was lying in the dark, that she would most vividly imagine that a special household. Her mother, her grandmother, and her two aunts. They were the kindest, wittiest, most delightful, lovable people who ever breathed. And she compared all other persons with them. And, so compared, Mr. Anderson came out very badly. As for Mr. Anderson... The reason he did not like Miss Selby was because she obviously did not like him. He was a little sensitive about being liked. He almost always had been in the past, and when he saw Miss Selby's eyes resting on him, with that look which meant that she was mentally comparing him with her mother, her grandmother, and her two aunts, he felt chilled to the bone. Not that he looked chilled. On the contrary, his face grew red, and he fancied that his neck, his ears, and his hands did also. He justly resented this. It was not his fault that he was sitting at her table. It wasn't her table, anyhow. Purely by luck had she sat alone at it so long. It was the only place left in the dining room, and the landlady told him to sit there. As he pulled out his chair, he said, Good evening, with a friendly and unsuspicious smile, and Miss Selby glanced up at him as if she were surprised to hear a human voice issuing from this creature, and bent her head in something probably intended to be a nod. Naturally, he did not speak again. But, as he sat facing her, and with his back to the room, he could not help his eyes resting upon her from time to time. And it was then that he had encountered that chilly look. It was very pitiful, he thought, to see one as young as she behaving in such a way, really pitiful, because she was not unattractive. Even a casual glance had informed him of that. Dark-browed she was, and dark-eyed, but with hair that was bright and soft and almost blonde, and a lovely rose color in her cheeks, the sort of girl a man would admire if there had been the true womanly gentleness in her aspect. But after that look, it was impossible to admire. He could only pity. Strange as it may seem, Miss Selby pitied him, and for a somewhat illogical reason. She saw pathos in the man because he was so large, so much too large. His great shoulders towered above the table, Knives and forks looked like toys in his lean brown hands, and his face was invisible, unless she raised her eyes, which she did not intend to do again. She had seen him, though, as he crossed the room, and she might have thought him not bad-looking if he had not come to sit at her table. It was an honest, alert young face, healthily tanned with warm grey eyes, and a crest of wheat-coloured hair above his forehead. But when he did sit down at her table, she immediately began her usual comparisons. She imagined this young man in that sitting-room in Boston, and she saw clearly how much too large he was. It was a small room, 
and her mother and her grandmother and her two aunts were all of a nice, neat, polite size. Like a bull in a china shop, she thought, imagining him among them. This was unjust. It is never fair to judge bulls by their possible behavior in china shops anyhow. They seldom go into them, and when seen in the fields or in bullfights and so on, they are really noble animals. But this is what she did think, and as soon as she could finish her dinner she arose, and with another of those almost imperceptible nods she went away. She went up to her own room and began to study shorthand. She did this every evening with great earnestness, for she was very anxious to get a better position than the one she had now, and she was so far advanced in her study that she could write absolutely anything in shorthand, if you gave her time enough. She could often read what she had written, too. As for Mr. Anderson, he also went up to his room, but not to study. He had had all he wanted of that at college. Nor did he need to worry about a better position. The one he had was good, and he was confident that he would have a better one next year, and a still better one the year after that, and so on and on, until he was one of the leading paper manufacturers in the country, if not the leading one. He had just been made assistant superintendent of a paper mill in this little town, and he had come out in the most hopeful and cheerful humor. The hope and cheer had fled now. He felt profoundly dejected. He had no friends here, and if other people were like that girl, he would never have any. For all he knew, there might be something repellent in his manner, which his old friends had kindly overlooked. He began to think sorrowfully of those old friends, of the little flat he had had in New York, with two other fellows, such nice fellows, such a nice flat. When you looked out of the window there, you saw a facade of other windows with shaded lamps in them, and the shadows of people passing back and forth. And down below in the street, more people, and taxis, and big, quiet, smooth-running private cars, and all the familiar city sounds. And here, outside this window, there were trees. Nothing but trees. He had heard often enough about the loneliness of country dwellers when in a great city. But he felt that it was not to be compared with the loneliness of a city dweller among trees. He got up and went to the window, and he couldn't even see a human creature. Only those sentinel trees, moving a little against the pale and cloudy sky. It was a May night, and the air that blew on his face was a May air, a wonderful thing, filled with tender and exquisite perfumes, so cool and sweet that he grew suddenly sick of his tobacco-scented room, and decided to go out on the veranda. What happened was a coincidence, but it would surely have happened sooner or later. He met Miss Selby. As soon as he had stepped outside, she opened the door and came out too. There was an electric light in the ceiling of this veranda, which gave it a singularly cheerless appearance, rather like the deck of a deserted ship, with the chairs all drawn up along the wall. There was nobody else there, and Mr. Anderson stood directly under the light so that she could see him very plainly. She said, oh, and drew back hastily, putting her hand on the doorknob. This was a little too much. Look here, said Mr. Anderson crisply. Don't go in on my account. I'll go myself. Now, Miss Selby was not really haughty or disagreeable. Simply, she had been brought up on all sorts of red riding-hood tales, in which all the trouble was caused by giving encouragement to strangers. She had been taught that it was a mad, reckless thing to acknowledge the existence of persons whose grandparents had not been known, and favorably known, to her grandparents. But certainly she had no desire to offend anyone, and this stranger did seem to be offended. So she said, Oh, no, you mustn't think of such a thing. She meant it kindly, but unfortunately she was utterly unable to speak in a natural way to a stranger. 
In reality, she was a poor, homesick, affectionate, kind-hearted young girl of twenty, who, not fifteen minutes before, had been weeping from sheer loneliness. But she spoke in what seemed to him an obnoxiously condescending and superior tone. He was a young man of many excellent qualities, but meekness was not one of them, and he resented this tone. So he spoke with an air of amused indulgence, as if he thought her such a funny little thing. "'I don't want to drive you away, you know.' She raised her eyebrows. "'Why, of course not,' she said, just as much amused as he was, and sat down in one of the chairs against the wall. She sat there, and he stood opposite her, leaning against the railing, both of them silently not liking each other. Presently the silence became unbearable. "'The spring has come early this year,' observed Miss Selby. Mr. Anderson, the city-dweller, knew precious little about what was expected of spring, but he was determined to say something, anything. "'Yes,' he agreed. "'They were selling violets in the streets yesterday.' Miss Selby looked at him with a sort of horror. "'Was that his idea of spring?' violets being sold on street corners? But that doesn't mean anything, she cried. They were probably hothouse violets anyway. You can't possibly see the real spring unless you go in the woods. She didn't think she owned the spring. Every year of his life he had spent several weeks in the country at various hotels. He had seen any number of woods, had walked in them, and admired them too, with moderation, however. Yes, I know, he admitted. Last June I motored up through Connecticut— Oh, but that's different, she explained. Motoring, that's not the same thing at all. There's a little wood near here. I go there almost every Sunday. I wish you could see it. I'd like to, he replied, without realizing the step implied. They were both dismayed by what had happened. Miss Selby arose hastily. Well, good night, she said, and fled upstairs to her room in a panic. Heavens, she thought. Did he think I wanted him to come with me tomorrow? Oh, dear, how, how awfully awkward. Oh, I do hope it will rain. Mr. Anderson left by himself, lit his pipe. After that, he mused, of course I'll have to ask her to let me go with her tomorrow. That's only common courtesy. Very well, he was willing to make the sacrifice. 2. It did not rain the next day. On the contrary, it was as bright and blithe a day as ever dawned. There was no plausible reason why a person who went into the woods almost every Sunday should not go today. It would be too rude just to walk off, if he thinks I meant him to come along, thought Miss Selby. But perhaps he won't say anything more about it. He did not appear in the dining room while she ate her breakfast. Probably he's still asleep, she thought, with that pardonable pride everyone feels at being up before someone else. He was not asleep. On the contrary, he was looking at her that very moment as she sat down at her precious table, eating the Sunday morning coffee ring. He had breakfasted early on purpose, hoping that by doing so he would avoid her. For the more he meditated upon her behavior, the more sternly did he disapprove of it, and he had come downstairs this morning resolved to be merely polite. He could not help sitting at her table. Certainly he didn't want to, and she had no right to treat him as if he were an annoying intruder. But no matter what she did, he intended to be polite. And, as he sat on the veranda railing and observed her through the window, he thought that perhaps it would not be so very difficult to be polite to her. She looked rather nice this morning, in her neat, dark dress, with the sun touching her brown hair to a warm brightness and a sort of Sunday tranquility about her. He felt a chivalrous readiness to take a walk in the woods with her. She might even point out all the flowers and tell him facts about them if she liked. She arose, and he turned his head and contemplated the landscape, so that he would not be looking at her when she came out of the door. Only she didn't come. 
although he kept his head turned aside for a long time. He heard no sound of a door opening or of footsteps. Nothing but the subdued voices of the four ladies who sat on the veranda, enjoying the sunshine. He glanced toward the dining room. She was not there. Very well, probably she had changed her mind, and he would not be called upon to be chivalrous after all. He would have the whole day to himself, the whole immensely long, blank, solitary day. Miss Selby, however, had simply gone upstairs to put on her hat. Or rather, she put on three hats, one after the other, two rather old ones and one quite new. She decided in favor of an old one, and felt somewhat proud of herself for this, because didn't it show how little she cared about strangers? If it happened to be a singularly becoming hat, she couldn't help it. She went downstairs and out on the veranda, and there he was, even bigger, she thought, than he had been last evening. A tremendous creature, fairly towering above all the old ladies, and looking most alarmingly masculine and strange. Something like panic seized her. He was so absolutely a stranger. She knew nothing whatever about him. He might be the most undesirable acquaintance that ever breathed. But when he said good morning, she had to answer, and, in answering, had to look at him, and was obliged to admit that his face was not exactly sinister. Off for a stroll, he asked. Yes, she answered. Yes, I am. There was a silence, then chivalry required Mr. Anderson to speak. Well, he said, if you don't mind, I mean, I'd be very pleased. Oh, certainly, said Miss Selby. So off they went together. They went across the lawn and down the road, and after the first moment of awkwardness they got on very well. Indeed, it was extraordinary to see how many topics they thought alike. They both agreed that it was a beautiful morning, that the spring was the best time of the year, and that the smell of pine needles warm in the sun was unique and delightful, and that Mrs. Brown's coffee was very, very bad. Then, according to Miss Selby's directions, they turned off the highway and entered the wood. It was not a thick and somber wood, but a lovely little glade where slim silver birches grew, among bigger and more stalwart trees, standing well-spaced, so that the sun came through the budding branches, making a delicate arabesque of light and shadow. It was all so fresh, so verdant, so joyous, like one of those half-enchanted forests through which knights used to ride, long ago when the world was younger. It was so serene and yet so gay that even Mr. Anderson, the champion of cities, was captivated. He walked through that wood with Miss Selby, he saw how she looked when she found violets growing, saw her, so to speak, in her natural habitat where she belonged, and that seemed to him something not easily to be forgotten. There was Miss Selby down on her knees picking violets, Miss Selby looking up at him with that lovely colour in her cheeks, her clear, candid eyes asking him if they weren't the prettiest things. He answered no, with considerable emphasis, but somehow she did not trouble to ask him what he meant. She fancied that Mr. Anderson appeared to better advantage in the woods. Seen among the trees, he didn't seem too large. Indeed, with his blond crest, his mighty shoulders, his long, easy stride, he was not in the least likable in a china shop, but a notably fine-looking young fellow. In short, when Miss Selby and Mr. Anderson returned to the boarding-house for the midday dinner, they no longer disliked each other. 3. The old ladies had noticed this at once, and it pleased them. They saw Miss Selby and Mr. Anderson talking cheerfully to each other at the little table, and they said to one another, Young people, young people, and they were old enough to understand what that meant. The young people themselves did not understand. 
They didn't even know that they were especially young, and certainly they saw nothing charming or interesting in the fact that they were sitting at a small table and talking to each other. They were, at heart, a little uneasy because they had stopped disliking each other. Dislike was such a neat, definite, vigorous thing to feel, and when it melted away it left such a disturbing vagueness. Of course, Miss Selby knew that she could not possibly like a stranger. The most she would allow herself was not to dislike him. And simply not disliking a person is a very unsatisfactory state of mind. It couldn't be helped, however. The dislike was gone. And there they sat, not disliking each other, every single evening at that little table. Naturally they talked, and naturally, being at such close quarters, they watched each other what time they talked. And when you do that, it is extraordinary what a number of things you learn without being told. The little shadow that flits across a face the smile that is on the lips and not in the eyes, the brave words and the anxious glance. These things are eloquent. For instance, Miss Selby talked about that unique household in Boston. She did not say much, that wasn't her way. Yet Mr. Anderson deduced that the mother, the grandmother, and the two aunts were, so to speak, besieged in their Bostonian home, that the wolf was at their door, and that Miss Selby was engaged in keeping him at a safe distance and that she was probably the pluckiest, finest girl who had ever lived, struggling on all by herself, homesick and lonely, and so young and little. As for him, he talked chiefly about the manufacture of paper. Until now, this subject had not been a particular hobby of Miss Selby's, but the more she heard about it, the more she realized what an interesting and fascinating topic it was. What is more, while Mr. Anderson talked about paper, he told her, without knowing it, many other things— she learned that he was a very likable young fellow, with a great many friends, and yet was sometimes a little lonely because he had no one of his own. That he was prodigiously ambitious, yet found his successful progress in the paper business a little melancholy sometimes, because no one else was very much affected by it. He said he had been brought up by an aunt who had given him an expensive education and a great many advantages. He spoke most dutifully of this aunt, of all that he owed her, Yet Miss Selby felt certain that this aunt was a very disagreeable sort of person, who never let people forget what they owed her. Very different from Miss Selby's aunts, she had even begun to think that perhaps her aunts, together with her mother and grandmother, might like Mr. Anderson in spite of his size. And then he spoiled everything. To be sure, he thought it was she who spoiled everything, but she knew better. It was his lamentable, his truly deplorable masculine vanity. This man, who appeared so independent, so intelligent, this disillusioning incident took place on the second Sunday of their acquaintance, the Sunday after that first walk. Almost as a matter of course, they set forth upon another walk, and as it was a bright, windy day, rather too cool for sauntering in the woods, they went along the highway at a brisk pace. The spring had capriciously withdrawn, the burgeoning branches were flung about wildly against a sky blue, clear, and cold. The ground underfoot felt hard. Everything gentle, promising, and beguiling had gone out of the world. And perhaps this affected Miss Selby. Her cheeks were very rosy, her eyes shining, and she was in high spirits, even to the point of teasing Mr. Anderson a little. He found this singularly agreeable. For the most part, he could see nothing but the top of her hat, coming along briskly beside him. But every now and then she glanced up, and each time she did so, he felt a little dazzled because of the radiance there was about her this day. He thought, but how glad he was later on that he had kept his thoughts to himself. There was a steep hill before them, and they went at it with that feeling of pleasant excitement one has about new hills. 
They wanted to get to the top and see what was on the other side. And very likely they were a sort of allegory of youth, which always wants to get to the top of the hills and hopes to find something much better on the other side. But this idea did not occur to them, and alas, they never reached the top. Halfway up that hill there was a garden with a stone wall about it, a wide lawn ornamented with dwarf firs, a fine garden of the formal sort, but not very interesting. And Miss Selby and Mr. Anderson were not interested. They would have passed by with no more than a casual glance, but as they drew near the gate a dog began to bark in a desperate and violent fashion, and a sweet and plaintive voice said, "'Oh, Sandy, stop, you naughty boy!' Naturally they both turned their heads then, and they saw Mrs. Granger standing behind the gate. At that time they did not know her name was Mrs. Granger, or any other facts about her. But Miss Selby always believed that, at that first glance, she learned more about Mrs. Granger than, well, than certain other people ever learned in weeks of acquaintance. A charming little lady Mrs. Granger was, dark and fragile, very plaintive, very gentle, the sort of woman a really chivalrous man feels sorry for, especially at that moment when she was having such a very bad time with that dog. It was a rough and unruly young dog, a collie and a fine specimen too, but ill-trained. She was holding him by the collar, and he was struggling to get free, and barking furiously, his jaws snapping open and shut as if jerked by a string, his whole body vibrating with his unreasonable emotional outburst. "'Keep quiet,' said she, with a pathetic attempt at severity. And when he did not obey, she gave him a sort of dab on the top of the head. It was more than his proud spirit would endure." he broke away from her, jumped over the low gate, and flew at Mr. Anderson. But not in anger. On the contrary, he was wild with delight. He rushed round and round the young man, lay down on his shoes, licked his hands, and when Mr. Anderson patted him, he was fairly out of his mind and rolled in the dust. Oh, cried Mrs. Granger, but how wonderful! She turned to Miss Selby. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't what? inquired Miss Selby. I'm afraid I don't. That strange instinct that animals have, Mrs. Granger explained solemnly. What instinct, asked Miss Selby politely. I thought he was just a friendly little dog. Oh, but he's not friendly with everyone, cried Mrs. Granger. Not by any means. It was at this point that Miss Selby's disillusionment began. She looked at Mr. Anderson, expecting to find him looking amused. And instead of that, he was pleased. A little embarrassed, but certainly pleased. Then the charming little lady spoke again, addressing Miss Selby. "'What darling wild roses!' she exclaimed. "'I do wish I could find some.' "'They're azaleas,' said Miss Selby, "'and the woods at the foot of the hill, next to your garden, are full of them.' Mr. Anderson was not looking at them just then, but only heard their voices, and he was very much impressed by the contrast. One of them had sounded so gentle and sweet, and the other so chill and curt. It was deplorable that Miss Selby should be so ungracious. He was disappointed.' So he thought that he, at least, would be decently civil to the poor little woman, and he turned toward her with the intention, only he could think of nothing to say. He smiled, though, and Mrs. Granger smiled at him, and Miss Selby observed this. And Mrs. Granger knew that Miss Selby observed this, and she smiled at Miss Selby. It was a smile that Mr. Anderson would never understand. "'I wish you'd both come in and look at my garden,' said Mrs. Granger wistfully. "'We,' began Mr. Anderson cheerfully, but Miss Selby interrupted. Thank you, she said, but I must go home now. Good morning. And she actually set off down the hill. Mr. Anderson, of course, was obliged to follow, and the dog, Sandy, had the same idea. Go home, old fellow, the young man commanded. Sandy gave a yelp of joy at being addressed and stood expectantly beside him, grinning dog-wise into his face. Mr. Anderson again ordered him home, 
and Mrs. Granger called him, but he did not go. He had to be dragged back by the collar and held, while Mrs. Granger fastened the leash to his collar. "'I never saw anything like it,' she declared. "'He's simply devoted to you.' "'Dogs generally take to me,' the young man admitted. Mrs. Granger raised her soft, dark eyes to his face. "'I think that's a very wonderful thing,' she said quietly. "'Because I'm sure they know. I'd trust Sandy's judgment against any human beings.' "'Oh, well,' Mr. Anderson remarked, grown very red. "'You must come and see Sandy again some day,' she suggested. "'Poor little doggie.' "'I will,' said he. "'Yes, thanks very much. I will.' All this had taken considerable time, and Miss Selby was nowhere to be seen. He hurried after her, and, turning the corner at the foot of the hill, saw her marching briskly along ahead of him. She must have known that he would follow, yet she did not look back once, and when he reached her side she said nothing. Neither did he. They went on. Presently Miss Selby began to talk, making a very obvious effort to be polite. Mr. Anderson did not like this, but he, too, made an equally obvious effort at politeness, and succeeded quite as well as she did, and they continued in this formal, almost stately tone for some time. When she looked back upon it, Miss Selby was always at a loss to understand just how and when this correct tone had vanished from their conversation and the quarrel had begun. For it was a quarrel, a genuine and hearty one. And although Mrs. Granger was never once mentioned, yet the quarrel was about her. Miss Selby declared flatly that dogs did not have any wonderful instinct for judging people. Mr. Anderson said he knew they did. "'What?' she cried. "'You don't mean to say you think a dog knows by instinct whether anyone is good or bad?' "'That's exactly what I do mean,' he declared. Then Miss Selby laughed. She regretted it afterward, but it was done. She had laughed at Mr. Anderson, and he resented it deeply. They walked side by side for half a mile and never said one single word, and by the time they reached the boarding house they had firmly established that worst of all complications, an angry silence. It was now impossible for either of them to speak. 4. It was impossible to break that silence without an intolerable sacrifice of pride, yet so very, very small a thing would have sufficed. One entreating glance from Mr. Anderson and Miss Selby would have responded willingly, just a shade of warmth in her smile, and the young man would have made an impetuous apology. But he was not going to give entreating glances to persons who laughed at him, and her smile showed no warmth at all, but instead an extreme chillness. They smiled when they met every evening in the dining room, simply to keep up appearances, and it was a complete failure. The old ladies noticed at once that something had gone wrong. They discussed it with unflagging interest all week, wondering what had happened and whose fault it was. They all hoped that matters would be adjusted by Sunday. Sunday came, and it was a sweet, bright, warm day. The hour for taking walks came, and Mr. Anderson went out, alone. The old ladies were truly sorry to see this. Miss Selby also saw it. She came out on the veranda just as he was going down the steps, and, although she did not turn her head, she had caught a glimpse of his tall, broad-shouldered figure going off, alone. She had a book with her, and, sitting down in a sheltered corner, she began to read. It was impossible. On this gay spring morning, nothing in printed books could interest her. Not that she cared what Mr. Anderson did or where he went. Only she was homesick and so very lonely. There was nobody to talk to. And it would be such a long, long time before she could afford to take a vacation and go back to Boston to see her own people. Er, good morning, said Mr. Quincy in his apologetic way. For two months, Mr. Quincy had been apologetically making attempts to talk to Miss Selby. He was a most inoffensive young man, a teller in the local bank. 
he had virtually all the virtues there are. Thrift, industry, sobriety, honestly, and he knew people in Boston. Yet hitherto Miss Selby had discouraged him, for no good reason at all, but simply because she wished to do so. Imagine his surprise and delight when this morning she replied to him with something like cordiality. The old lady saw him sit down on the railing near her chair. They saw his pleased smile, and they decided that Miss Selby was a fickle and heartless girl. Then presently they saw Miss Selby go out for a walk with Mr. Quincy. In the meantime, Mr. Anderson was striding along the quiet country roads at a tremendous pace. No, he did not like the country. Except for his unique and wonderful paper mill, he could wish with all his heart that he was back in the city, where there were numbers of people he knew, friendly faces to see, jolly voices to hear. He could think of no particular person he was especially anxious to see. Yet it seemed to him that he missed somebody, badly. So he went up that hill again. Again Sandy was there and Mrs. Granger. Again he was invited to look at the garden, and this time he accepted. 5. Mrs. Granger was a widow, and she admitted herself that the loss of Mr. Granger had made her very sympathetic. She told Mr. Anderson that she understood, and he firmly believed this without exactly knowing what there was to be understood. Anyhow, her manner was wonderfully soothing to one who had recently been laughed at, and the young man appreciated it. Twice they strolled round the garden, followed by Sandy, and Mrs. Granger, in a charming and playful way, made a chaperone of Sandy. "'You know you're Sandy's friend,' she said. "'He discovered you.' Mr. Anderson found this very touching. Then, when they had come round to the gate for the second time, she said that she would be very pleased to see if he would like to come in for a cup of tea that afternoon. "'Thank you,' he replied heartily. "'That's very kind of you.' And he really did think it was very kind of her, that she was a charming, gracious, kindly little lady. Yet he had not said definitely whether he would come to tea or not. For all the time in the back of his mind was a queer, miserable feeling he could not define. A sense of guilt, as if he had been very careless about something very dear to him. He thought that he would not make up his mind until, well, until he saw. What he saw was Miss Selby coming home from a walk with Mr. Quincy. She was carrying a small bouquet of violets, so he supposed that she had been in the woods, in those same woods, and with Mr. Quincy. So Mr. Anderson did go to tea with Mrs. Granger. Mrs. Granger said he might come on Wednesday evening, and he went. She played on the piano and sang for him, and he praised her music so much that she was charmingly confused. Never did she guess that it was not admiration that moved him, but pity, because she made so many mistakes in technique. And he accounted all these mistakes to her credit. He thought, like many another man, that the worse her performance in any art, the more domestic and womanly she must be. He felt a fine, chivalrous regard for the poor thing. But still he kept waiting for some sign of relenting on the part of Miss Selby. Every evening, as he crossed the dining-room to the little table, he thought that perhaps tonight it would be different. Perhaps tonight it would be as it had been during that time when they talked to each other. Of course, if she didn't care, he wasn't going to force his unwelcome conversation upon her. She was a woman. It was her place to make the first move. What had he done, anyhow? Maybe he had been a little hasty, but at least he hadn't laughed at her, or even had the slightest desire to do such a thing. And if, in her unreasonable feminine way, she wanted him to apologize for things he hadn't done, he was ready to do so, if she would make the first move. Very well, thought Miss Selby every evening when she saw him. If he's satisfied to, to let things go on like this, I'm sure I don't care. She was much better able to wear a calm expression of not caring than he was. He looked dejected and sulky, but when out of the public eye he did better than she, 
for he merely walked up and down his room, or gazed out gloomily upon those depressing trees, while she, locked in her own room, often cried. The next Sunday it rained, but nevertheless he went out early in the afternoon, and Miss Selby knew very well where he was going. Let him, she said to herself, if he's so taken in by that, that designing woman and her dog, I don't care. She's probably trained the dog to behave like that. This was unjust. Mrs. Granger had no need to train dogs to bring guests into her house. Undoubtedly she liked Mr. Anderson, but if he had not come there would still have been Captain McGregor, whom she had been liking for a good many years. Mr. Anderson was soon made aware of the captain's existence by Leroy. Now there is no denying that Leroy himself was a shock to the young man. To begin with, it seemed incredible that anyone who looked as young as Mrs. Granger should have a son eight years old. And in the second place, if she did have a son, it should have been a different kind of child. Leroy was a nice enough boy in his way, but completely lacking in the plaintive and poetic charm of the mother. Indeed, he seemed more akin to Sandy, a rough, cheerful, headstrong young thing, but he had none of Sandy's admirable instinct for judging human nature, and in the beginning he did not like Mr. Anderson. He was frank about it. He said that Mr. Anderson's watch was markedly inferior to Captain McGregor's, and he expressed a belief that Captain McGregor could, if he wished, lick Mr. Anderson. He said a good many things of this sort, so that the young man was badly prejudiced against his unknown captain some time before he met him. And when he did meet him, on that rainy Sunday, nothing occurred to soften the prejudice. He found McGregor installed as an old friend. He found also that the man had brought to Mrs. Granger, as a gift, six silk umbrellas. Six! It was an overwhelming gift. Anderson himself had brought a box of chocolates, but this was completely overshadowed by the umbrellas, just as he himself was overshadowed by the impressive silence of the other man. A big, weather-beaten fellow of forty-five or so was this McGregor, with the face and the manner of a giant sphinx. He was neither handsome nor entertaining, but it was impossible to ignore or despise him. The solid worth of him, the honest self-respect, and the massive obstinacy were plainly apparent. He was not worried by the appearance of a strange young man. On the contrary, he seemed mildly amused. He let Anderson do all the talking, and just sat in a corner of the veranda smoking his pipe. This aroused in Anderson an unworthy spirit of emulation. He did not enjoy being so completely overshadowed by this man and his six umbrellas. And he returned the very next evening, with four superb phonograph records. He found McGregor there, just opening a paper parcel containing fourteen pairs of white gloves. He waited until Wednesday, and then he arrived with a long box of the most costly roses. The captain was not there, but Mrs. Granger showed Anderson a little gift she had received from him the night before. Five mahogany clocks. The unhappy young man was almost ready to give up then, until Mrs. McGregor casually explained that Captain McGregor was a marine insurance adjuster, and, in the course of his business, was often able to buy articles which had been part of damaged cargoes, and yet were themselves in no wise damaged. "'So that he sometimes brings me the most wonderful things,' she said. "'He is so thoughtful and generous. Don't you like him, Mr. Anderson?' "'Well, you see, I don't know him very well,' Anderson replied. He went home somewhat comforted. Not only had Mrs. Granger been unusually sympathetic and charming, but her words had inspired him with a new idea. On Friday evening he arrived with a very large package which he left in the hall. He then entered the sitting-room and found Mrs. Granger sweetly admiring the captain's latest gift, seven handsome black silk blouses, all exactly alike. He let her go on admiring and even generously said himself that they were very nice. 
Then, after a decent interval, By the way, he remarked, and went out into the hall and fetched his package. It was pretty imposing. He had spoken to the foreman of the paper mill, and the foreman had shown a friendly interest, so that he was now able to present to Mrs. Granger one ream of the finest cream vellum writing paper with envelopes, two reams of grey note paper with blue envelopes, one ream of thin white writing paper, the envelopes lined with dark purple, and a vast number of small memorandum pads, pink, blue, and yellow. Those are for Leroy, he said, with a modest air which failed to conceal his triumph. This time he had won. There was no doubt about it. 6. On Saturday night, Miss Selby did not appear at the little table. Gone out to dinner, he thought. Why shouldn't she go out to dinner? He simply hoped that she was enjoying herself. And as he ate his solitary dinner, he thought about this. He imagined Miss Selby enjoying herself somewhere, sitting at some other table and probably with some other young man sitting opposite her. He knew how she would look if she were enjoying herself, with that lovely colour in her cheeks and that wonderful smile of hers. Well, it was none of his business, absolutely none of his business. And yet, after dinner, he found occasion to stop the landlady in the hall and to say with an air of courteous indifference, That young lady who sits at my table, didn't see her tonight. Has she gone away? No, Mr. Anderson, answered Mrs. Brown with stern solemnity. She has not. She's lying upstairs, sick at this very moment that I'm speaking to you. And I think it's pneumonia, that's what I think. Pneumonia, he cried, but only last night. It takes you sudden, Mrs. Brown asserted. And Miss Selby, well, people have often said to me how blooming she looks, but I knew it was nerve, and nerve alone that kept her going. Nerve strength, she sighed. It's a treacherous thing, Mr. Anderson. You live on your nerves, and then all of a sudden they snap, like that. And her bony fingers snapped loudly, a startling sound in the dimly lit hall. The young man was in no condition to judge of the value of Mrs. Brown's medical opinion. He was simply panic-stricken. He went out of the house in a sort of blind haste and began to walk along roads strange to him, under a cloudy and somber sky. He heard the voice of the wind in the trees, and to his unaccustomed ears it held no solace, but it was a voice infinitely mournful. Pneumonia, that little, little pretty thing, so far from home, ill and alone in a boarding house, such a young little thing. He remembered that morning in the woods, her face when she looked up at him from the violets she was picking, that radiant face, clear-eyed as a child's. It's my fault, he cried aloud. I ought to have known she couldn't take care of herself properly. It's my fault, the poor little thing. She's done some fool trick, got her feet wet, probably makes her lunch of an ice cream soda. Perhaps she can't afford any lunch, and now pneumonia. She had no right to get pneumonia. It's... He stopped short in a still, dark little lane, clenched his hands, stood there shaken by pain, by anger, by all the unreason of grief and anxiety. She ought to have known better, he shouted. 7. When he came downstairs the next morning, Mrs. Brown regarded his strained and haggard face with profound interest, and she observed to one of the old ladies that she believed Mr. Anderson was coming down with something. He made inquiries about Miss Selby's health, and obtained very vague and confused replies, which he interpreted as people jaded and despondent from a bad night are apt to interpret things. He went into the dining room, but he could eat no breakfast. Who could, sitting alone at a little table, opposite an empty chair? Then he went out again. It was a rainy day, but that was so fitting that he scarcely noticed it. He remembered having seen a greenhouse not far away, and he went there. 
It was not open on Sunday, but he made it be open. He banged so loud and so long on the door that at last an old man came out of a nearby cottage. "'It's a case of pneumonia,' said the young man fiercely. "'I've got to have some flowers.' So he was admitted to the greenhouse, and he bought everything there was, and then sat down at a little desk to write a card. He never forgot the writing of that card, the rain drumming down on the glass roof, the palms and rubber trees standing about him, and the hot, moist, steamy smell like a jungle. He never forgot what he wrote, or how he felt while he wrote it. But there would be no use in repeating what he wrote, for nobody ever read that card. He put it with the flowers and set off home. When he got there, he gave the bouquet very sodden now to Mrs. Brown's servant and said to her, "'Please give this to Miss Selby. Give it to yourself. Don't send it.' Then he went up to his own room and locked the door, and the room was all filled with the grey light of a rainy day. The clang of the dinner bell startled him. He jumped up scowling and muttered, "'Oh, shut up!' But just the same he had to obey it. He had to go downstairs and had to sit at the little table. Scarcely had he sat down when he saw Miss Selby enter the room, Miss Selby in a new dark green linen dress, looking unusually pretty and not even pale. He arose. He was pale enough. He couldn't speak. She must have received that card. She must have read it. As she glanced at him, he saw the color deepen in her cheeks and her smile was uncertain. She was so lovely. I thought, he began. She sat down and he did too. Again their eyes met. It's a miserable day, she observed. He didn't think so. He thought it was the most beautiful day that had ever dawned, and he might have said something of the sort, if he had not just at that moment seen an awful thing. He stared, appalled, almost unbelieving. The waitress was coming across the room carrying his immense bouquet. No, he cried, half rising. But it was too late. She had come. She presented the bouquet to Miss Selby with a pleased and kindly smile. For you, she announced. Everyone in the room was watching with deep interest. "'See here,' said the young man in a low and unsteady voice. "'I I only got them because I thought they—she told me you had pneumonia. "'I thought, give them back to her, throw them away. I, I'm sorry.' "'Sorry I haven't got pneumonia?' asked Miss Selby. "'It's too bad, but perhaps I can manage it some other time.' Her tone and her smile hurt him terribly. He wished that he could snatch the flowers away from her. She was laughing at him again. Everyone in the room was laughing at him and it didn't occur to him that Miss Selby couldn't possibly know how he felt, but was a very young and inexperienced creature who was also hurt by his strange manner of giving bouquets. She thought he wanted her to know that, unless she were very ill, he wouldn't dream of giving her flowers. She was even more hurt than he was. "'Will you bring a vase, please, Kate?' she asked. Kate did bring a vase, and the hateful and offensive flowers were set up between them like a hedge." He leaned over and, with his penknife, deliberately cut off the card tied to the stems and put it in his pocket. And not one more word did they speak all through that dreadful meal. 8. In his pain and anger and humiliation, he turned blindly to Mrs. Granger, the charming little lady who never laughed at anyone. He couldn't get to her fast enough. He strode on through the mud in the steady downpour of rain, simply longing to see her, to hear her soft, gracious voice, and to be within the shelter of her friendly home. The card was still in his pocket. He took it out and, as he walked along, tore it into bits and strewed them behind him. They fell into puddles where they would lie to be trampled on, those words he had written. A suitable end for them. He pushed open the gate of Mrs. Granger's garden, and was very much comforted by Santy's ecstatic welcome. Dogs did know. They appreciated it when you meant well. They were not suspicious, not mocking. 
When you gave them something, they accepted it in good faith. He went on toward the house, walking rapidly, impatient to get there to the general serenity of Mrs. Granger's presence. He rang the bell, and directly the parlour-maid opened the door, he knew he was not going to have peace and solace. Something had gone wrong. He could hear Leroy's voice raised in a loud, forlorn bellow, and Mrs. Granger's voice tearful and trembling, and Captain McGregor's voice with a slightly exasperated note to it. He entered the sitting-room, and there was Mrs. Granger weeping and Leroy sobbing. Sandy began to bark. "'Oh, Mr. Anderson!' cried Mrs. Granger. "'How can you let him do that? Oh, please keep him quiet!' Anderson put the dog outside and then returned. "'But what's the matter?' he asked. "'Leroy's been bitten by a m mad dog!' cried Mrs. Granger. "'Was not a mad dog,' Leroy asserted. "'See, here on his leg,' she went on. "'And he never told me. It happened late yesterday.' "'There's no reason to assume that the dog was mad,' interrupted the captain. "'It was! Animals adore Leroy. Only a rabid dog would dream of biting him.' "'It was not a rabid dog,' Leroy insisted sullenly. "'Well, see here,' said Anderson. "'If you think, if you're worried, why not have his leg cauterized?' "'Oh, I can't,' she cried. "'My child burned with red-hot irons.' Leroy began to bellow at this inhuman suggestion, and Mrs. Granger clasped him in her arms. "'Don't cry, darling,' she sobbed. "'Mother won't let them hurt you.' And she looked at Captain McGregor and Mr. Anderson with unutterable reproach. They were silent for a time. "'Well, see here,' Anderson suggested. "'If you could find the dog and keep it under observation for a few days.' This idea appealed to the child. "'Sure,' he said. "'I'll find him, Mum. You just let me alone and I'll find him for you, all right.' "'You said you couldn't remember what the dog looked like.' "'Yes, I know, but I remember the street where it was.' And I'll go back there tomorrow, Leroy declared. I could stay out of school just in the morning and just ferret it out. I got lots of clues, and I bet you... I'll go with you now, said Anderson. The agitated mother didn't even thank him. Perhaps that would be a good idea, she admitted. You might try it anyhow and see. So Leroy was fortified against the rain in oilskins and rubbers, and he and Mr. Anderson set forth together in quest of the dog. The small boy was highly pleased with the adventure. He did not often have an opportunity to frolic in the rain, and he made the most of it, caracoling before Anderson like a sportive colt. Sandy, too, would have enjoyed it, but he was tied up. One dog at a time, said Anderson. Now, young feller, let's hear about it. Ah, oh, it was nothing, Leroy replied with admirable nonchalance. Just a dog ran up and bit me. I mean, I was running, and I guess I stepped on his paw, and he bit me. Did you tell your mother you stepped on the dog? I don't know what all I told her, Leroy admitted. Anyway, what's it matter? Had to do something to keep her quiet. Anderson considered that it was not his place to rebuke this child, and he let the disrespect pass. Where did it happen? Long ways from here, all right, said the boy triumphantly. He spoke no more than the truth. It was a very long way. They went on and on, down long, quiet suburban streets, lined with dripping trees and houses with no signs of life. They went on and on. At first, Leroy was talkative and cheerful and found great satisfaction in splashing in puddles. But as time went on, he grew silent, and tramped through the puddles more as a matter of principle than through enjoyment. "'What was the name of the street?' asked Anderson. "'Well, I don't know,' the boy answered. "'But I guess I'd know it if I saw it. Somewhere's around here it was. Might be around the next corner.' They went round the corner, and there was a candy store. "'That's it,' Leroy announced. "'It's open, too.' Mr. Anderson said nothing but walked steadily forward, and Leroy trotted by his side. 
They sure did have good lollipops in there, observed Leroy. Best I ever tasted. Still no response from the adult, possessor of all power and wealth. Leroy sighed, and Anderson turned to look at him, and discovered a wet and not very clean face upturned to his, with brown eyes, very like Sandy's. Poor little kid, tramping along so bravely in his oilskins. He looked tired, too. All right, said Anderson. We'd better go back and get a few lollipops. After that, Leroy went on, much encouraged in spirit. Here's the street, he cried at last. The little dog ran out of one of those houses. I don't know which one. Mr. Anderson rang the bell of the first house. The occupants owned no dog, never had, and never intended so to do. In the second house, he was confronted by a very disagreeable old lady. She admitted that she had a dog, and she said with unction that her dog could and would bite any person's unlawfully trespassing on her property, as was any dog's right. I dare say Rover did bite the boy, she suggested, if he came in here trampling and stamping all over my flower beds. And serve him right, I say. I did not, said Leroy indignantly. And that's not the dog, Mr. Anderson. I can see him out the window. He's a police dog, and my dog was a little one. They proceeded to the next house. Nobody came to the door at all. There was only one more house left on the street. Well, I hope the right dog's in there, said Leroy. But, he paused, then laid his hand on Anderson's sleeve. Most any little dog would do, he said, very low, for her. Mr. Anderson was about to protest sternly against such a dishonest and immoral suggestion. But somehow he didn't. The child's hand looked so very small, and his manner was so trusting. He said nothing at all, simply walked up the path to this last house. He rang the bell, and the door was opened with a startling suddenness by a little man with spectacles and a neatly pointed white beard. He looked like a professor, and he was a professor, of romance languages, and because of his scholarly unworldliness, he had been cheated and swindled so many times that he had become fiercely suspicious. He glared. This boy has been bitten by a dog, Mr. Anderson explained, and we want to find the dog to see. Ha, said the little man, and what has this to do with me, pray? I thought perhaps you had a dog here. The professor folded his arms. Very well, said he, I have. And what of it? If you'll let us see the dog. Aha, said the professor. I see. A blackmailing scheme. You wish to see my dog. You will then cause this child to identify the dog as the one which bit him, in order that you may collect damages. A very pretty little scheme, I must admit. Anderson had had a singularly trying day, and he was very weary of this quest, anyhow. Nothing of the sort, he said curtly. If you'll be good enough to let us see your dog, or if you'll give me your assurance that the animal is perfectly healthy. Don't you give him a penny, Joseph, cried a quavering female voice from the dark depths of the hall. The professor laughed ironically. Very pretty, he repeated. But you may as well understand once and for all that I absolutely refuse to allow you to see my dog or to give you any assurance of any kind whatsoever. And nothing could move him. Mr. Anderson argued with him with as much tact and politeness as he could manage, just at that time, but in vain. See here, he said at last, let me see the dog, and if it's the right one, I'll buy it. Now will you believe? But the professor would not believe, until Anderson had signed a document which he drew up, solemnly promising, that if the dog were identified by Leroy as the dog which had bitten him, he, Winchell Anderson, would purchase the said dog for the sum of $25. Then, and then only, was the dog brought into the room. And Leroy instantly, loudly, and fervently asserted that it was the dog. By this time, Mr. Anderson was perfectly willing to believe him. 
He paid the money and stooped to pick up the dog, a small animal of what might be called the spaniel type. It snapped at him. He could not pick it up, because on the next attempt his hand was bitten. At last, upon his paying in advance for the telephone call, the professor summoned a taxi. Mr. Anderson could not get the dog into the taxi, but Leroy had no trouble at all with it. It seemed to like Leroy. They rode home in silence, because every time Anderson uttered a word, the animal growled and struggled in the boy's arms. They reached Mrs. Granger's house, and while Leroy ran ahead with the dog in his arms, Anderson delayed a minute to pay the taxi with the last bill remaining in his pockets. Then he followed. It had been a costly and a wearisome quest, but Mrs. Granger's relief and gratitude would be sufficient reward. In the doorway of the sitting-room he paused a moment, smiling to himself at the scene before him. Leroy was down on his knees, playing with this quite unexpected and delightful new dog, and Mrs. Granger knelt beside him one arm about her son's neck. Captain McGregor was there, but in a corner, so that one need not consider him in the picture, the peaceful lamp-lit room, the gentle mother and her child. I'm very glad, he began, when, at the sound of his voice, the dog sprang up and rushed at him, and was caught by Leroy just in the nick of time. He growled threateningly. I guess I'd better tie him up, said Leroy. He doesn't like Mr. Anderson. Why, how very strange, Mrs. Granger exclaimed. Leroy did tie him up to the leg of a table. But why doesn't the poor little doggie like Mr. Anderson, pursued Mrs. Granger, and there was something in her voice that dismayed the young man. I don't know, he replied briefly. It's very strange, she remarked. Very. But sit down, Mr. Anderson. Perhaps you were just a little bit rough in handling him, without meaning to be. No, he wasn't, Leroy asserted indignantly. He... At this point, the dog broke loose, flew at Anderson, and would have bitten him if Anderson had not prevented him, with his foot. Oh, cried Mrs. Granger. Oh, Mr. Anderson, how could you? You kicked the poor little doggie. I... I simply pushed him with my foot, said Anderson. He's a bad-tempered little brute. Dogs are never bad-tempered unless they're badly treated, Mrs. Granger declared with severity. They always know a friend from a foe. All right, the young man agreed. Then I'm afraid I'm a foe. He turned toward the door. If you'll excuse me, he said, I'll be getting along. I'm... I'm tired. Good evening. Good evening, said Mrs. Granger and Captain McGregor in unison. She let him go. He opened the front door and stepped out into the rain again and never in his life had he felt so bitter, so disappointed, so cruelly, intolerably depressed. After all he had done, she let him go like this. Not even a word of thanks. Poor little doggie, eh? Halfway down the path he heard a shout. It was Leroy, rushing after him bareheaded through the rain. Say, he shouted, your... Words failed him, and he stretched out his hand. A rough, warm little hand, wet from the rain, sticky from lollipops. Yet Anderson was very glad to clasp it tight. "'Good-bye, old fellow,' he said. "'Good-bye, old fellow, yourself,' answered Leroy. And he sat on the gatepost watching and waving his hand as Anderson went down the road in the rainy dusk. 9. Mr. Anderson had finished with women forever, and this resolve gave to his face a new and not unbecoming sternness. The old ladies noticed it directly he entered the dining-room that evening. Miss Selby noticed it, too, but pretended not to. She smiled that same chilly, polite smile and never said a word. Neither did he. Supper was set before them, and they began to eat, still silent. And then she spoke suddenly. "'What's the matter with your hand, Mr. Anderson?' she asked. "'Oh, nothing, thanks,' he answered. Again a silence. But she could not keep her eyes off that clumsily tied bandage on his hand. "'I wish you'd tell me,' she said. It was an entirely different tone. 
but he was no longer to be trifled with like that. He smiled coldly. No doubt you'll be very much amused, he remarked, to learn that I've been bitten by a dog. He waited. Why don't you laugh, Miss Selby, he inquired. It's funny enough, isn't it? After I said that dogs always know, it's what you might call biting irony, isn't it? I don't want to laugh, she said. I'm just sorry. He looked at her. Miss Selby, he cried. I took your flowers upstairs, she said. I think they're the prettiest, the prettiest flowers I ever saw. Miss Selby, he exclaimed again. See here, please. When I thought you were ill, I only had a little cold. I wrote a note, he said. I tore it up. I, I wish I hadn't. Miss Selby was looking down at her plate. I wish you hadn't, too, she agreed. The old ladies had all finished their suppers, but not one of them left the room. They were watching Miss Selby and Mr. Anderson. Surely not a remarkable spectacle, simply a nice-looking young man and a pretty young girl, sitting quite speechless now at a little table. Yet one old lady actually wiped tears from her eyes, and every one of them felt an odd and tender little stir at the heart, as if the perfume of very old memories had blown in at the opened window. "'Let's go out on the veranda,' said Mr. Anderson to Miss Selby, and they did. The rain was coming down steadily, and the wind sighed in the pines. But it was a June night, a summer night, a young night. Not an old lady set foot on the veranda that evening. Not another human being heard what Miss Selby from Boston and Mr. Anderson from New York had to say to each other. Only Mrs. Brown, opening the door for a breath of fresh air, did happen to hear him saying something about the best sort of paper for wedding announcements. End of Dogs Always Know